Ruth chapter 2. And we will start with Ruth verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the field of the until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. May God bless the reading of his word. So we're coming to the end, the conclusion of chapter 2. And if you haven't noticed, Ruth is kind of really a neat story because it's almost like a play <laughs> being enacted. And every chapter is just the closing of, of a particular scene. Um, and so it's with that that we continue on with this story, with what's going on, with the narrative. And we go to verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Now that Ruth is back in the house and she's likely settled down finally, Naomi decides it is time to ask the questions which have been raging in her mind um, since Ruth returned. As we saw in the previous weeks, Ruth went out in the morning to glean in the fields in order to bring home something for her and Naomi to eat. Um, Ruth ended up bringing home at least two weeks' worth of barley for the women. This is a great amount compared to what would normally be gleaned. So it's upon seeing this amount that Naomi begins her questions. The first question she asks is, where did you glean today? Followed quickly by, where have you worked? It may seem that this is a bit redundant to ask, but the truth is is that it's meant to bring emphasis. Um, Naomi is very curious about how Ruth managed to glean so much in such a short amount of time. One can imagine her quickly spouting out these questions because of her excitement over the situation. She then changes the focus of the questions to the man who took notice of Ruth. We notice two things from this. The first is that Naomi blessed the man whomever he was. She recognizes that some generous benefactor has played a part in what they had received, and because of this, blesses that individual. We also notice that Naomi recognizes Ruth's hope had actually come true. Ruth had gone out to glean in the field in in hopes of finding one in whose eyes she would find favor. Naomi recognizes that someone did notice her, and she did find favor in that person's eyes, otherwise they wouldn't have gotten so much. After Naomi had heard her turn and had asked all these questions, Ruth tells of the events that occurred. It was likely a longer story than the one that is presented, um, as Naomi would probably be interested in learning about the event's entire day. Still, the narrator only informs us that Ruth told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. Um, It is with this that there is a great kind of a pause in the discussion, so to speak. The way this works out in the Hebrew is meant to give us a type of suspenseful expectation. Who was the man? That's what we want to know. And the ESV captures it well by translating it as, The man's name with whom I work today is... Uh, We notice that she doesn't just say what his name is. Um, The whole thing is drawn out for the story. 
In the end, with all the excitement in the air between the two women and all that has occurred, Ruth finally says the name, Boaz. And we come to verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, The man is a close relative of one of ours, one of our redeemers. Naomi continues the conversation by uttering a blessing. First, we notice for this blessing, she invokes the name of Yahweh. Assuming Boaz is the focus of the blessing, we can recognize that in order for Boaz to be blessed, it would need to be by Yahweh's hand, um, rather than their own. The women don't really have anything. However, there's some debate um, if Naomi is actually saying, May the Lord be blessed, and not may he be blessed by the Lord. In this sense, the focus is not on Boaz, but on God. At this point, we come to the clause, which is also debated because of what we just debated. Uh, What the ESV translates as, whose kindness has not forsaken. Kindness here is a term we looked at last week, which is hesed. Um, The question everyone asks is, who is in mind when this clause comes into view? In other words, is it the hesed of Boaz that is not forsaken, or is it the hesed of Yahweh? Generally, scholars tend to go with the latter view. Um, One of the reasons has to do with the Lord, Yahweh, who was just mentioned. Um, So he's the closest to the clause. The second is, the second half of the verse where Naomi says, the man is a close relative of ours. If Boaz was the one whose hesed has not forsaken, then it would make more sense for Naomi to say, he, rather than the man. Um, Hence, she differentiates between the one she was just speaking about in the clause, which is Yahweh, and Boaz later in the verse. One other note from scholars is that this particular phrase was used once before in Genesis 24:47, when Abraham's servant finds Isaac a wife. He says literally, or almost literally the same thing. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. We see the same statement here. Um, Blessed be the Lord and... He has not forsaken his steadfast love, his hesed. This should not surprise us too much as we consider, um, continue to see the similarities between Ruth and the patriarchs. And that's something that we've kind of hit on before in Genesis. Um, so the one whose hesed has not forsaken the living or the dead is Yahweh. This raises some interesting questions. First, who are the living and the dead? Well, the living in this case... Um, would be Naomi and Ruth. God has clearly provided for them in their need and has given his hesed to them, especially through the hesed of Boaz. The dead then represents Elimelech and his sons Malon and Kilion, who are not forsaken through God's grace to the women who are still alive. This also causes us to think of the word hesed itself. Um, as we saw last week, hesed means much more than just kindness, as the ESV and other translations say. Block, who's a commentator, specifies the following when describing hesed. Love, mercy, grace, kindness, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, and covenantal faithfulness. All of these things are in hesed. What we see then is that Naomi does a 180 in regards to her relationship to Yahweh. In the previous chapter, she recognized his hand being against her. Now, she is recognizing his hesed is being displayed to her. Instead of forsaking his hesed, as she had assumed was happening, God has shown her hesed, but we see the major reason for this is because of Ruth, and what she has done, and what has happened to her. It is from this that Naomi informs Ruth of Boaz, that he is a close relative and a redeemer. Granted, 
this is again a bit redundant. Why doesn't she just say that he's a redeemer? It would just make more sense. But the redundancy is probably meant again for emphasis. Why the emphasis? Most likely it would have to do with the role of a redeemer. And possibly to remind us from chapter 1 how Naomi blessed Ruth with the hope that she would remain in Moab and find a new husband, a Moabite husband. Is it possible now for Ruth to not find a Moabite husband, but an Israelite husband? A redeemer, even. We'll have to wait and find out. One final note before we continue to the next verse is also in the way that Naomi informs Ruth of Boaz. We notice she does not say he is her relative or her redeemer. Instead, she uses the plural, our relative, our redeemer. The significance of this statement is that Naomi considers Ruth, this Moabitess, to be a member of the tribe of Judah, one of the family. It also reflects the way Boaz has treated her. There are at least two people in the tribe of Judah who consider Ruth to be a member of the tribe, and that is Boaz and Naomi. We then come to verse 21. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he has said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. We then have a curious reminder of Ruth and her status. The narrator informs us that Ruth is Ruth the Moabite. That's what he says. Why is the narrator bringing in her heritage again at this point in time? The likeliest reason is for us, the readers, to remember that Ruth is not originally from the tribe of Judah. Because of this, it is possible for the readers to understand that Ruth may not understand the implications of Boaz being a kinsman redeemer. Likewise, it may remind us that though Naomi and Boaz see her being grafted into the tribe, others might not see that yet. Ruth then informs Naomi of the conversation between Boaz and herself. In regards to this, Block notes the sudden change in discussion may stem from the previous thought. Assuming Ruth was unaware of the situation of being a close relative to Boaz and what all that entailed, she may have thought of his statement to stay close by while she was reaping. Hence, the likely change in direction in the conversation may stem from Ruth's own ignorance of the situation, which is why you see that random, um, she goes from, oh, he's a close relative. Oh, he told me to stay in the field and stay close by. Do you see how that connects? That said, she reports that Boaz wanted her to remain close by the young men until the end of the harvest. While Boaz did not say that in the recorded text, if you noticed that earlier, it is possible she either surmises this from what was reported or he informed it of her sometime during the work day and elaborated it to her at a separate time. Regardless, she informs Naomi that she is supposed to stay until the harvest is finished, according to Boaz. We then come to verse 22. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you should go with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Naomi approves of the plan for her to remain in Boaz's field. At this point, Naomi may be beginning to hatch her own kind of plan concerning the new information given to her by Ruth, if you're not noticing this. Even if this is not the case, she still would recognize the great generosity of Boaz and want to remain close to him, who has been such a wonderful benefactor to the women. However, she does make a slight change, and this is where you see it. Um, Ruth stated that Boaz wanted her to remain close to the young men. Naomi changes this to say that it would be better for her to go with the young women. 
There are two reasons why Naomi would recommend this. The first is to keep Ruth from being ostracized by the men. Um, There would be likely less abuse, if any, as compared to being around the men. And this is seen particularly with the word assaulted at the end of the verse. The second may be more mischievous than that. Um, If we think about it, Ruth remaining with the young men would mean that she would be around eligible bachelors. Is it possible that Naomi is keeping her from these possible candidates in hopes of her further finding favor in the eyes of Boaz? The intrigue. (laughs) The intrigue of these Jewish people. Um, We'll have to see how it all plays out. (laughs) We don't know. Verse 23. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So we come to the end of chapter 2. Here we find a quick synopsis of what occurs with Ruth. She kept close to the young women of Boaz. Right away we learn that she follows her mother-in-law's advice um, to stay with the women rather than the men. Likewise, we learn that she continued to glean until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. Um, This time of gleaning would be from late April until early June, around six to seven weeks of work. Safe to say that she continued to gather during this time, allowing both women to survive for the time and possibly have enough until the next harvest. Finally, we learn that Ruth lived with Naomi. This is interesting for two reasons. The first reason is that it reflects chapter 1. There we found Ruth making a covenant, so to speak, with Naomi to lodge or to stay wherever Naomi stayed. Ruth is honoring this by staying with Naomi. She is not going to abandon her now that they have a benefactor, but instead continues to remain with her. The second is, it is interesting to notice that the whole harvest occurs and we learn nothing more of what may occur between Ruth and Boaz. Nothing. Um, Instead, the story is left in a state of limbo. We don't know what's going to happen. But we do know that whatever whatever was going to happen with Ruth and Boaz likely ended with the end of the harvest. They're not communicating much anymore. This could be a reason that the narrator informs us that she lived with Naomi. Hence, it reminds us of the promise which Ruth made, but it also reminds us that she does not have a home which Naomi desired for her in chapter 1. So, this leads us to the main point of this section, which is to inform us what occurred between Ruth and Naomi, as well as to inform us what happened the rest of the harvest season. As it turns out, God's providence and Hesed is with the women, and he has provided for them during their time of need. Likewise, if chapter 1 ended in a sorrowful note, which it did, chapter 2 ends in a state of limbo, questioning. What's going to happen? It's an expectation. Um, We don't know if this is all that they will receive at this point. We don't know what, if anything, will happen between Boaz and Ruth. For now, we are left wondering what will happen next. So this leads us to our application points. Future reference, these were annoying to write this week. I don't know why. I just had an issue. So if these are awful, just throw something at me. The first is work ethic. There is something to consider from what we have seen in today's text, and that is Ruth's work ethic. As we have seen in this chapter, Ruth has been blessed by Boaz in allowing her to reap where reaping is not generally allowed. Um, Because of this, it allows her to have a greater harvest. Something we consider about this is Ruth herself. 
Um, after receiving this blessing, we notice it does not cause her to slack off. Instead, as we saw from the previous section, she worked from sunup until the evening, which is what normally gleaners would do. Now, this is going to be one of those times when I get a little bit political. I try to stay away from these kinds of things, um, unless they're brought up in Texas itself, so I'm sorry, but we'll see how it goes. The truth is, I think that we can see something in this that would cause us to stop and think about our own time, society, and culture. In particular, when it comes to many who believe in, let's say, entitlements, um, that they should receive something even though nothing has really been done. Not only does it speak to such a people, but it also speaks to those who abuse the system. Those who, let's say, are capable of working, but because they've received some kind of entitlement, continue to not work. Basically, the question is, why work when I've received this stuff for not working, or for not working as much? We all, I've experienced this many times in the work field. Why work when I can stay at home and do nothing, um, do my own thing, and receive support? Obviously, this is a very different from those who are truly in need. Um, Those people within our society who are in need of help because of certain disabilities and to such individuals who have probably faced such sorrow and suffering, we should give encouragement and help too, obviously. But to those who are able to work, those who are not disabled but continue to receive such funding, we need to encourage them to something different. Um, Simply put, it's not going to be enough for us to stop giving. Nor is it going to be enough for us to yell at them to change their ways. What we really need is for a cultural shift to occur. One where it is recognized to be, it is better to be able to work rather than to not work. Where we can encourage individuals to seek to use their hands wisely and to work hard while they're able. In essence, we need to encourage ourselves, each other, and others to emulate Ruth. Ruth, as we notice, does not receive her gifts and squander them. She does not work less. She continues to work hard to gain more for her efforts and for the generosity of Boaz. Instead of making the bare minimum, she continues to work hard throughout the harvest season. We also notice that Boaz does not expect her to do no work. She is the one who continues to glean. She is the one who beats out the chaff. She is the one who is out in the field. They do not come to, they not come to her and bring her everything. She is there, she is working, and she is profiting from her own work. So for those of you who are a bit more conservative leaning, um, let's remember that in order to really change the society, we need to use reason in the marketplace of ideas. It is right for our society to have a safety net for those who are in need, obviously. But at the same time, that safety net has truthfully increased to cover too much of the population. Most of us would agree with this. In order for this to change, though, we need to encourage individuals to change. We need to show that a good work ethic is good to have, and that it glorifies God when we work. As Christians, we have the greatest reason to work, as it is one of the first things we learn about God in Genesis, isn't it? He is a creative and working God. He created the entire cosmos. We are to be working people, just as God is a working God. That work may play out differently. Some may be called to work in different areas and in different times in our lives may require different forms of work. But to work in some capacity is to be part of who we are and who we are created to be. Just to make sure we all understand the importance of this, um, here are some references to help ground it for us. 
From the fruit of his mouth, a man is is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. Proverbs 12, 14. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Proverbs 18, 9. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Proverbs 21, 25. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Proverbs 23, 4. And that has to do with workaholics. Um, Sometimes we can work so hard that we forget that God has given us other things, a normal life to live, (laughs) um, to be with family and friends, and it's okay. Um, And... This one too. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Second Thessalonians 3.10-12. That's one that's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> and finally... And just as a way to recognize that work does, in fact, take different forms. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and in teaching. First Timothy 5.17. Um, so we see that work isn't just with our hands. It also involves with the church. It's considered labor, to labor in love. From these verses, we are further grounded in the reality that work is good, and we should seek to work in what the Lord has given us. Though there is truth that we tend to find work exhausting, and many times it seems that it's not rewarding, and I think that this actually is a result of the fall. If we remember Genesis chapter 3, our toil would be the sweat of our brow. It would be hard to labor. That's why we don't feel fulfilled sometimes when we work. It's a result of the fall. Um, It doesn't negate, though, that we should find thankfulness in the work which we are able to perform. So be encouraged to again, emulate Ruth, working hard, and especially be encouraged to emulate Ruth when we labor in the work of the Lord through the proclamation of the gospel in our call to prayer. Um, In these ways, we do labor. In these ways, we labor for the glory of God. Now, this leads us, I know, I told you that was going to be crazy. It was. All right, Kinsman Redeemer. The book of Ruth has a few different important themes. We have seen one of them recently when we considered Hesed. Um, Another theme has been Providence. This week we find another important theme that runs in the book of Ruth, and that is redemption. Um, In these verses we learn the very important fact that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, or what the ESV just called a redeemer, of Ruth and Boaz. It is with this that we consider what it entails to be a kinsman redeemer. We generally assume that a kinsman redeemer is only meant to marry a widow of a brother or a close relative. The truth is that the goel, which is the Hebrew name for redeemer, is important for Israelite family law. This is especially true when a family member is in crisis. It is the goel who would come to their aid. Now, Bloch, in particular, notices five attributes of the Goel. The first is that they are to make sure that clan property remains in the clan. We see this occur in Leviticus 25, 25-30, where we find a man who has to sell his land to an outsider because he has become poor. The kinsman redeemer would go help reclaim the land, buy it back. Um, the second is found in Leviticus 25, 47-55. If an individual becomes poor and they have to sell themselves into slavery, it is the kinsman redeemer who buys them back out of slavery. 
Um, the third is from Numbers 35, 12, 19 through 27. There we find that if one is murdered, then a kinsman needs to execute the murderer of the close relative. <laughs> eye for an eye. <laughs> None of you were expecting that one, were you? <laughs> It's actually what they're supposed to do. Um, the fourth is from Numbers 5, 5 through 10. There we find a near kinsman who will receive restitution for crime committed against a fellow kinsman. Um, this is an assumption that the kinsman who deserves the restitution died, so then the close relative, the redeemer, would get that restitution himself. Um, the fifth is from Job nineteen twenty five, Psalm one nineteen one fifty four, and Jeremiah fifty thirty four. And in, in in this sense, we see a kinsman redeemer is to make sure that true justice occurs during a lawsuit which involves a relative. Um, so that relative is not treated unjustly if, let's say, something is brought against them in court, for example. In all of these things, we find some kind of redemption, don't we? Just a little bit of redemption in all of them. However, we can also see there is nothing in these texts to assume that a near kinsman must marry a deceased kinsman's wife. Um, The closest we have to this occurs with the Leverite marriage, which is separate from the kinsman redeemer. This stems from Deuteronomy 25, 5-10, and we're going to go through it real quick. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in to tell her and take... go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duties of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not, this is funny, just so you know, <laughs> I think it's hilarious. If the man does not wish to, stay, wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull off his sandal, off his foot, and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. There you go. I know, it's nuts. Um, what we see, however, is that there is a difference between the kinsman redeemer and the Leverite marriage, obviously. Um, in fact, the Leverite marriage is not even necessary. It's a choice by the individual. Both of these things, however, will occur in Ruth for those who have read ahead. <laughs> Cheaters. <laughs> but the point of all of this is to remember that the role of a kinsman redeemer, so that's what we talked about earlier, that's what we saw in Naomi's statement, is focused on something very important for Israel, and that is family and land. We notice that the kinsman is meant to redeem both, and to bring justice if necessary. As Christians, we could probably learn from the, from the majority of this. Granted, some of it is a legal code specifically for the Israelites, such as the necessity of a close kinsman to bring retribution to a murdered family member. Um, in our society, we have a legal system which can be influenced by the scriptures, but because of our legal system, we rarely have to take matters into our own hands personally, if ever. Still, there is something to be said of the closeness of this, um, how it really appears that to offend one of us in the tribe is to offend all of us. If one of us is wronged, then all of us 
are wrong. If one of us is in trouble, then we are all in trouble, and we all will look out for one another. Do you get the sense of that in this Redeemer setting? From being in slavery to being bought out of slavery, um, losing land and having that land bought back through the kinsman Redeemer and in these other ways. Perhaps this is something else we can emulate from the book of Ruth. Not only can we emulate Ruth's work ethic, but we can also emulate the way these familial clans love and care for one another um, almost as themselves. It is reminiscent of the words of Jesus. They will know that you are uh, my disciples through your love for one another. So that is something to consider from this Goel, from this Redeemer, that we should seek to emulate this with our relationships with each other, to take care of one another in this way. Our congregation needs to be a congregation which first takes care of its own and in this way show the world of our love and care for each other. We can do this because we are all kinsmen if we are in Christ. We can love each other and help redeem each other in some capacity because we are in Christ. Likewise, it reflects the greatest act of redemption, which is the cross of Christ. He himself is the great kingsman redeemer, redeeming us from our slavery in sin and defeating that which um, gives us our death, which is sin. It is in Christ we find our own redemption. And when we who are redeemed come together, we should seek to emulate even that for each other in love, just as Christ loved us and redeemed us. We can't do anything to save someone from death or sin as Christ has done. That is his work. But we can love and take care of each other as family and seek to bring certain kinds of redemption for each other as a reflection of Christ who brings us the greatest redemption of all. And so that's what I would say we get from the kinsman redeemer. We are like a clan. We are like the tribe of Judah. Every congregation. Let's take care of each other. Let's love each other. In all of this, we continue to see the gospel of Christ. Logically, we're able to see it within the last point in particular, but there are other features in today's text which remind us of the gospel. For example, the way that Ruth is included by Naomi when she says Boaz is of our close relative, our redeemer. Ruth is being grafted into the tribe, albeit slowly, which is similar to us. We too are grafted in, by grace, through faith in Christ. This is just another way the gospel is seen right here in the book of Ruth. Um, The gospel itself begins with our creation. God created everything according to his word. The cosmos is not a part of God, so to speak, but a separate creation from God by his own power. All of his creation, of all of his creation, he made humanity to be made in his image. This means that because God is a God of love, reason, personhood, knows, can be known, and displays hesed, so can we. It is because of this we find the reason for human dignity and the sanctity of human life. Most people don't realize that without this kind of a foundation, these things don't matter. Humanity doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to have any of these attributes because where's the foundation? Like God, though, we are also able to choose. With our freedom of choice, we could either choose to follow God in obedience and life or disobedience into sin and death. We chose the latter, and all of humanity has chosen likewise ever since. Because of this, our relationship with God, ourselves, each other, and the world is broken. 
We accrue a great moral guilt for our sin each day. Not a feeling of guilt, not a feeling of dread or angst, but true guilt, like one who is before a holy and righteous judge, our God. It would be impossible for us to do anything to escape this darkness on our own. Because of this, God decided to act. He sent his word and his light into the world, and this was Jesus Christ. He lived, he died, and he rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. This is the crux of the gospel. It is through this we find redemption for our sins. It is not our work which gives us our redemption, but the work of Christ. He became the propitiation for our sins. We are justified, made guiltless, and sanctified by his blood. And through him, we find victory over sin and death. All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance. Our lifestyles are not to remain in sin as they once were before our conversion. Um, Instead, we are to turn from our sinful lifestyles and turn toward God in life, living according to his will and for his glory, living in step with his spirit. We can know his will, and we can know what glorifies him, and we know we are walking in step with the Spirit through the Scriptures, and through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, which is proclaimed in the Scriptures, as we see in Ruth. The second is that we are to have faith in Christ. We are to recognize that we are completely dependent upon Christ for our salvation and our justification. It is not that we are able to be so good that we are saved, but that Christ is so good that we are saved. It is his work which redeems us, not our own. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Those who are disobedient in these things will experience condemnation for their sins. There can be no redemption outside of Christ. Any who go before God without Christ will find their own merit stained by their sin and worthy of wrath. Therefore, there is only condemnation for the true guilt which they have accumulated in this life, and because of that, they will experience death. For those who are obedient, however, there is no more guilt. Nor is there condemnation. Instead, there is eternal life for those who are in Christ. We become co-heirs of an everlasting kingdom. We experience the great love, the great hesed of God Almighty, which is reserved only for His Son and those who are in His Son by faith. So be encouraged by what we read in Ruth. There is much here to remind us of the necessity of the gospel. There is much here to remind us of how we have been redeemed by Christ, how he is our kinsman and redeemer. Just that thought alone is worthy of all consideration. That once we were enemies of God and now we are kinsmen because of the work of his son. Be encouraged to live out this gospel and let the world see the reason for our joy, which is Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the book of Ruth, and we thank you that you are a God who has given us knowledge of you. You did not just sit in heaven and leave us without prophets, Lord. You actually sent prophets to us to tell us who you are and to write down what you would have them write down so that we could learn all about you and who you are. And Lord, so we thank you for this. We thank you that you continue to reveal yourself to us, that we can continue to know you day by day. And Lord, this is our hope, that day by day by day, for all eternity, we would seek to glorify you. 
and to know you. And again, Lord, we thank you for what you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ, and we ask you to continue to guide us in our steps. Amen. Please rise as we sing, Be Thou My Visitor.